a reading from the book of Philippians. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clean sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Butch. All right, good morning again. I'm back. Um, <laughs> if you are a guest with us, thank you for joining us today. It honestly means a lot to us. Uh, my name is Drew. I'm the pastor of discipleship, and it's an absolute honor and pleasure to walk through this passage we're going to be looking at for the next few minutes. Um, yesterday was my son Silas's, his fourth birthday. He turned four years old. And um, yeah, thank you for that. I also just wanted, I felt compelled, I wanted to thank you all for showing up to his birthday party at Pierce Park Pavilion. Um, <laughs> And for bringing all the food, the oysters, everything. I don't know um, if you know this, but kids' parties are expensive. So it was great. Um, it saved us a lot. He was a little bit confused as to why nobody's saying happy birthday. And I just told him it's all about humility, bro. Like, just go get in the car. You don't need a song. Let's just head home. What a great party that was. Um, so I picked Silas up on Friday from school, and he had had his own little birthday party with his pre-K class. And as we were walking out, there were some older kids playing on one of the little soccer fields, and I think they were playing like red light, green light or something. I've been doing some sermon prep, and my mind started to connect with um, games and activities that I liked as a kid growing up. And I'll just preface this by saying I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and I feel like there was a little bit higher level for risk we were okay with in the 80s and 90s. Um, this was an actual sanctioned event by my church student ministry. It was called um, Bottle Rocket and Roman Candle Wars. We, I'm not kidding. This happened for at least three straight years. This is how I entered student ministry, right? Not recommended today, but you would go out into this field, you'd bring your own glove, and then you'd get a pipe, and you'd just chase each other around and try to shoot each other. Um, a real thing, Right? As a kid, one of my favorite games, anybody uh, familiar with, with uh, Red Rover, right? All right. If you're not, it's this game where you line up as kids and you hold on as tight as you can to the kid next to you and you hope that the biggest kids are on your side um, because you are going to call someone over. And here's what happens. As you call Rex over, and Rex looks like a kid who eats other kids, <laughs> you have a choice to make with who you're holding hands with. You can decide, fight or flight mode. Um, you are either going to let loose with your partner and he's just going to bust right through the line. You're going to hold as tightly as you can and risk an arm being broken, which could happen. Um, or you're going to do my move, which was to slowly raise your arms and try to clothesline them to, to keep them from getting through the line. But if you ever watch kids play in this, you will see this sort of disunity of what are we going to do? Like, I don't know if I'm into this. I don't know if... Why do I say all of this in a fun way? Because for some reason, it actually makes sense, as I was thinking about that, it connects with what Paul's getting into today in this letter, in these few verses that we're going to look at. This idea of being unified, this idea of being on the same page with one another, no matter what's coming our way. Um, think about places in your life, just for a moment, 
where we can struggle with this idea of unity or where it's critically important. Think about marriage. Obviously very important to be unified and you know what happens when you're not. Tension comes in. Think about relationships, sibling relationships with brothers, sisters, family members, kids with parents, older kids still with parents, right? Tension when it comes to making decisions. What college am I gonna go to? What career, what, what decision should we make here? And it can present this tension as we seek unity. So in today's passage, in this part of Paul's letter, why is this concept of unity going to be so important? Because Paul pivots in a way that can seem sort of odd. And it doesn't really seem to fit a letter that's centered on joy. That's really the theme of what we're looking at, this contagious joy. Paul introduces something. He introduces suffering, which can seem odd. How do these all work together? Suffering, joy, and unity. That's exactly what we're going to see here. And when we realize how and why, I'll tell you this, it's completely transformative to the way that we relate to God and each other, regardless of what comes our way. In the darkest night, in the brightest day, in the celebration, in the sorrow, and everything in between. And ultimately what God wants to show us here is his desire for us, his bride, his church, born out of not disdain, not hesitation, out of love. So let me pray for us, and we're going to dive into this. I'm so excited for today. Thank you for joining us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this word. I pray that you would speak to us now through the power of your spirit. Would you speak to us wherever we are, whatever we came in with today? Um, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you it's living and active. We thank you that it is applicable to us today here in Charleston, 2023. And so we pray we'd receive it. And we pray that you would find those places in our hearts and in our lives where you want to continue to grow us and shape us, where you want to comfort us and show us love, where you want to connect us, where you want to redeem. Jesus, we pray all this in your name. Amen. All right. So we are actually, we need to start with the last two verses here. Sometimes you need to do this to truly understand these four verses. It sort of creates an umbrella context, if you will. So here's what it says as Paul continues this letter that we started a couple weeks ago. Speaking to the church in Philippians, sorry, in Philippi. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This provides the context as Paul is speaking to the church. And here's the deal. If you're, if you're not a Christian today, thank you so much for coming and being here. That takes courage um, to just investigate the faith. Here's what I would encourage you with today. As Paul is speaking to this church, as he's speaking to the church, this is a great opportunity to peer in, to see what God's saying, and to see if that's something that God might be leading you into, this relationship and so everything that Paul's saying now goes underneath this umbrella, this reality. What kind of suffering was this church facing? Well, we know that Paul was in prison writing this letter, and we have good reason to believe that they were facing persecution as well. This growing pressure from society to bend, to bend to Roman society, not to their faith. We also know is inevitable in any church family, you know this, there's general suffering. There's general suffering. 
There are really two types that I want to highlight. So there's the suffering, and we'll see this here, for what you believe, for who you are, what you believe. And there's also just the suffering, the general effects of living in a broken world. We all know that in small and large ways. Suffering for every single person that has ever lived or will ever live is inevitable. Regardless of the reason for suffering, I want us to see that there comes an opportunity in the suffering. And this just leads us to our big idea that we're going to unpack for the next few moments. In a world where suffering is inevitable, gospel community is irreplaceable. And this is not a platitude. This is not something that I was sitting at home and I was like, that sounds good. Or Laura was like, that sounds okay. This is so true. And it goes so much deeper than this. So now let's start in verse 27 and flesh this out. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So let's stop right there. What does Paul mean by this? Worthy of the gospel. This, this makes me think I need to do something. I need to earn it. Does this mean like I just follow all the rules? Does this mean I, I keep all the Old Testament laws? Does this mean that I need to look a certain way? Like, is there a certain like outfit that you should wear if you're a Christian? Is this what he's talking about? Like that makes me seem worthy. I need to be connected with the right people. What's Paul talking about here? That's, that's not what he's talking about at all. Paul's completely opposed to that idea. He's all about grace. He's all about this unmerited favor. So what does Paul mean here? Well, to understand it, we have to look at the original language. And here's what the original language, the Greek says. It says, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul is essentially saying, let me remind you who you truly belong to. Let me remind you of who you truly belong to and attempt to encourage you to reflect that and to prove it to be true. There was a temptation for this church specifically. They were a Gentile church, not a Jewish church. And they were a part of this, uh, they were a, a Roman colony. So they were Roman citizens and they were proud of their status as a Roman colony. And so he is appealing to their patriotic pride saying, hey, you know how you feel about being a part of this Roman colony and the pride that you have? Understand now that you are citizens of another colony of a greater kingdom and that trumps everything. You are official citizens of heaven as the church. And everything else needs to go underneath that reality. So as citizens of heaven, knowing that there are going to be ups, there are going to be downs, all of it in between. What does it look like and why is it so important to live a life worthy of the gospel? This is a question we need to ask. And Paul gives us the answer. So that, whatever, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, Paul's in prison. He doesn't know. I may hear of you that you are first standing firm in one spirit. Let's just dive right into this. Here's the reality for every single one of us. If you stand with the gospel of Jesus, hear this. If you truly stand firm in the gospel of Jesus, culture does or eventually will stand against you. Why is that? Because the implications of living a gospel-filled, gospel-centered life is completely counter-cultural. Culture says status matters. The gospel says forget status, be a servant. Culture says what matters most is your happiness. The gospel says what matters most is your holiness. Culture says money equals power. The gospel says the love of money is the root of all evil. Culture says, look your best on the outside. The gospel says, I care about what's happening on the inside. Culture says, do everything you can to get ahead. 
The gospel says, slow down and love your neighbor, even when it costs you. Every day we are making a choice, a conscious choice of whom we will pledge allegiance, ultimate allegiance to by the way that we live, which is an outward of expression of an inward faith in Jesus or the worship of culture. This doesn't mean that we live outside of culture because I think that's a mistake. I don't think that's what the Bible tells us to do because how do we reach if we live completely outside of it? It's this idea that we live in it, but we don't always live as it. The church could worship Jesus or they could worship Rome. And Paul knows this. And the pressure was real. And it's just as real today. We live in a post-Christian society where the teachings of Jesus are not lovingly embraced, but met with hostile indignation. That's just reality. So let's live in it. Let's not act like that's not true. So how do we stand firm? In and of ourselves, no, we can't do it. We will bend, we will break. That's why it's so important to see exactly what Paul says at the tail end of that. He says, in one spirit. The key here, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, which has been given to every single believer. God literally living in us as a helper to guide us, to hold us firm, to remind us of the truth. Paul is urging the church to remain completely reliant on the spirit of God and not on themselves. It's huge. And he says this, not only stand firm, but he says, in one spirit with one mind. This idea of being united in what? It's a great question. United in the gospel. This is the same idea we find in Acts 2, where in the early church, it says they had all things in common. It didn't mean that they all loved the same things. It meant that they had this one mind that was focused on the person and work of Jesus. And they held that in common, this greatest thing. Here's the deal. We are not one fellowship in here today because we all have the same political leanings. We are not one fellowship because we all have a similar past. You all have stories. You all have places you've come from. You all have places you've been. We are not one fellowship because we all share the same interests. We are one fellowship here in this room today, as is every gospel church, this local church, this bride of Christ, because we believe that a sinless savior came and died and we believe that his death and resurrection have given us new life and have the power to give others new life. That's what makes us the church in here today. That's our commonality. That's what brings us together. I look at you right now, you're all different. And I know some of your stories and I know some of your wrestlings and I know some of your struggles. And for those that I don't, I look forward to getting to know it. But this is a miracle, Jesus Church, that he would bring people so dysfunctional at times with so much baggage from so many paths and make us a family. It's an absolute miracle what you're a part of. And it's so easy for the church to become distracted. It is so easy for us to lose sight of our mission, which is a gospel mission, and to bring in our own agendas and our own ideas. Well, I think we should do this, or I think we should do that, and maybe we should lose sight, even not intentionally. Maybe it's a good thing, but it becomes the main thing. It's so easy for leadership inside of the church to lack what we were called to, to serve. Instead, it becomes about power. It's so easy for us to divide into our own little divisions. It's so easy 
for ideas and feelings to be treated like truth, and the truth is determined by what's based on, is based on what's culturally palatable, not on what God has actually said. Here's what all this leads to, disunity, dysfunction, and destruction. And Paul loves this church so much, and Jesus loves his bride so much, he is pleading, don't go that route. Be unified, have one mind. I wanna say this so clearly, what brings us together is Jesus, what keeps us together is Jesus. This is true now as it was for this church back in Philippi when Paul penned this letter. And it reminds me of one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, one that I go to in the darkest times, and I always have. Uh, Isaiah 26, three, it says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The picture in that verse is a city crumbling, but the people being able to stand firm because their mind is so focused together on Jesus, on who he is, on what he's done. Finally, Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. A community on mission is what you get a picture of here. I love this term, side by side, not alone. I want you to see everything Paul said here, it's communal language. <laughs> it's us together. Yes, and all of the mess and all the chaos and all of the ways that we don't perfectly live it out. It's us together. It's the family. You were made for a community. You were never made to go it alone. The faith is not a solo endeavor. You need one another. I need you, you need me. When I hurt, you hurt. When you hurt, I hurt. When you celebrate, I celebrate. We need one another in our corner at all times, no matter what comes, because things will come. This is what Paul's getting out here. This is so crucial and important that when it comes to the essentials of the faith, we are agreed and we hold firm because suffering is inevitable, opposition is inevitable. If we are truly a gospel community, none of us should suffer alone. None of us. Instead, we have side by side, brothers and sisters standing with us. Here's a great example of this. Uh, it's from a show I like called The Last Kingdom. Uh, the main line in that is destiny is all, uh, which is fantastic. Um, that's a side note. This, this uh, I don't know why I shared that with you. I just felt compelled. Maybe so we wouldn't get like sued for CCLI if I didn't say what that was from. Um, here's the deal. Though. The language Paul is using here, it's military language. You saw it right there. It's this reality that something is coming, that a battle is waging. And so what that's called is um, shield wall. In our men's hike, they call it shields up. But this idea of being so closely knit together that we cannot uh, be broken through and break down. This side-by-side -side relationship. I love this. Holding to the truth of the gospel and not only holding firm, but seeking to advance its mission this defense against whatever comes. So what does it really mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? Paul told us here. Here's what it is. That we, as a church, as a people, it means that we stand firm, united in the gospel, as a community on mission. And why is this so incredibly important that Paul would include it in this letter? Because the opposition is real. Suffering is real. I don't need to tell you that. Whether it's general suffering, whether it's suffering for what you believe, whether it's suffering that's going to come, it's real. 
That's why verse 28 says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation in that from God. What's the main method that the enemy uses over and over to try to keep us from living a life dependent upon the spirit of God, to try to keep us from holding firm to Jesus and holding to one another? The answer is fear. Fear. Primarily fear of man. Something we all wrestle with. The fear of ridicule or scorn, the fear of being rejected from a group, the fear of patronizing pity, the fear of losing popularity, the fear of simply not being seen as enough. Justin Holcomb, who was our speaker at our men's retreat, he shared a study that was done asking men what their greatest fear was. Here was the answer, being laughed at by other men. Fear can be a powerful thing. It can cause us to doubt, it can cause denial, and it looks to destroy even the strongest faith. This is why we were meant to do this life together. One of my greatest fears started as a child is the fear of being alone. I can distinctly remember being four or five years old, standing at the top of the stairs. My parents were downstairs watching TV. I should have been in bed, but I was so scared to be alone that I would stand there no matter how long it took until I heard their feet start to come up the stairs and then I would run to my room. And that carried over into my adulthood and I still wrestle with it. And during a very dark season of my life, of our life, just wrestling with infertility and feeling in this dark season, uh, that feeling popped back in in a heavy way and it transferred its way over into my faith. Maybe God's left me, maybe I'm alone here. Maybe God's left us, maybe I'm alone here. And so I spent countless hours. On one day I would meet with a priest, on another day I'd meet with a therapist. And that was all fantastic, it was needed, it was good. But as I reflect back on that now, you know what meant the most? You know what had the greatest effect on me? Gospel community. The people that went across the room, lifted us up when we were falling, spoke gracious truth into our life when we had doubts, were there in our corner during the down and out days where things felt like they were absolutely crumbling. There is such a power in gospel community and it is irreplaceable. Don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. Heavenly perspective combined with earthly gospel community that leads to an enduring trust in Christ is not only a powerful defense it is what Paul says here, a clear sign of salvation and that from God. It is a gift. This is a gift. Don't take it for granted. It's special. And you will not find it anywhere else outside of the church. Not this. Because it sticks in it no matter what. It's there for you. It forgives. It shows grace. It shows kindness. Paul ends by saying, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw that I had, and I now, and you now hear that I still have. If you look at this word granted, what does that mean? Here's what it literally means. It means graced. Paul is actually referring to suffering as a gift. You'd say, that seems very odd. Can I send that gift back? Like, did it come with a receipt? I don't want to suffer. I don't like that. None of us do. Suffering doesn't produce my happiness. Suffering doesn't produce ease. I'm not a fan of it, right? Here's what that means, though. And I want you to hear this, especially if you feel the weight of suffering today or hold it for tomorrow or think about your past where wounds are still open. If this is true, if suffering is a gift, it means that none of your suffering is a waste, that none of it lacks purpose, 
that none of it has been allowed outside of God's plan. It can only be seen as a gift or good in any way, shape, or form if there's a greater reason and purpose. That if the most important thing in your life is not your happiness and ease, but something deeper that God wants for you. This doesn't mean we invite suffering, and this doesn't mean that we deny its pain, but it does mean we understand its place. Paul knew this. It's how he was able to find joy in the midst of being locked up in a jail cell. Not happiness based on circumstantial feelings, but a joy based on unwavering truth, the truth of God's love. Paul goes as far to say here that suffering, check this out, this is wild. It's the first time I've ever read it like this. I think we read it in staff and I was like, oh my goodness. Like this is insane what Paul's saying here. It is. Paul goes too far to say that the suffering for the sake of Christ is just as valuable and important as believing in Christ. How is that? Because it's through the suffering, it's through the pain, it's through the difficulty that his love is put on display as he is there with us in it and as we become more like him through it. Tim Keller says this beautifully, way better than I just said it, so let me read his quote. So suffering is at the very heart of the Christian faith. It is not only the way Christ became like us and redeemed us, but it's one of the main ways we become like him and experience his redemption. And that means that our suffering, despite its painfulness, and I get it. I get the pain. I get the weight. It's a gift you would never ask for. Despite its painfulness, it is also filled with purpose and usefulness. This is the paradox of suffering within the kingdom of God. Something intended to destroy and distance, God uses to actually build us up, grow us, redeem us, and draw us closer to himself. It's phenomenal. Without suffering, there would be no church. Without suffering, there would be no gospel community to stand firm with, to encourage, to support. Without suffering, we would have no hope. How is this true? Because God... In his plan, instead of allowing that to be a reality, in his purpose, out of love, entered into our suffering. By the name of Jesus. That the original citizen of heaven left his throne and took up residence in our neighborhood and not a safe neighborhood. He lived a manner worthy of his calling. He stood firm in the Father's plans, even when it meant being slandered, losing friends, having an entire culture turn on him. And he had one mind, a singular purpose, to carry out the will of the Father. His opponents were fierce. His opponents were me and you. And yet he endured the suffering. He took the complete pain of our brokenness, even to the point of death. It says, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. He entered into our suffering to offer us a life in his death. And no, it's not a life of ease. It's not a life where everything's rainbows and it's all great all of the time, but a life that comes with a promise that one day all of the suffering will cease, that all of the suffering and all of the pain will be redeemed, that every tear will be dried, that everything will be made right. And until that day comes, he's given us his word, he's given us his spirit, and he's given us his people, these side-by-side brothers and sisters, citizens of heaven known as the church. We don't go it alone. You shouldn't go it alone. Don't go it alone. Life is far too hard. But in the midst of that, 
you can actually have joy if you will root your life on this unwavering truth, this truth of love. So what do we do with this, right? Four things I just want to hand to you. First, believe. I want you to know at a deep level, know that God loves you. Know that his people love you. Know that suffering is not his punishment or abandonment. None of it. Not a drop is wasted. Allow him to use it, even if you don't understand it or like it. Um, Two, to connect. If you're not in gospel community, let me help you get in gospel community. Go put your name on a card today. Come see me after the service. Let's get you in a life group. Let's get you connected. They need you. You need them. It's the way God intended it. Let us care for one another. Let us be people who walk across the room, the room of life, (laughs) not assuming that somebody else is going to fill that gap to offer support, to offer love, to offer truth as we're unified in the gospel. And let us decide who will we worship, Jesus or culture. Maybe for the first time today, you've sort of felt like you've been on your own, on an island, alone. Maybe you're going through difficult things or maybe things are okay right now, but you're like, I shouldn't do life alone. Jesus literally, by his death and resurrection, says no matter what your past, no matter what you've done, no matter what you wrestle with, no matter your doubts and all of that, if you will come to me, if you'll bring your brokenness to me, if you'll trust that my life, death, and resurrection took care of that and you will believe in me as your savior and allow me to lead you forward, I will lead you into a family. I will lead you into a community. He's not asking you to earn it. He's not asking you to put a down payment down on anything. He is simply saying this is a free gift, my grace paid for it by my blood. You can be a part of the family today and we'll celebrate and rejoice with you. In a world where suffering is inevitable, gospel community is irreplaceable. This is a miracle. This is a gift. This is the work of Jesus. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your hope. May we live in a manner worthy as these new citizens of heaven together, side by side, brothers and sisters, united, standing firm, on mission, your mission. Thank you for giving us new life. May we be a people that seek to share this good news with others so that they may have new life as well. For the areas where we're suffering right now, would you bring comfort? Would you bring truth? Would you bring redemption? Jesus, we pray this in your name.